Oh, chucking our law, you wet Kevins. What is the crack? Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. How have you been? Have you been looking after yourselves? Because I haven't. I went on a three-day lash because it was a long weekend. And uh, I'll do that once a year. Once a year, I will engage in a wanton disregard for... uh, my health and go on the lash for three days solid usually around the bank holiday weekend because I had a gig went on the lash and then I had my friend's gig went on the lash for that and then continued it slightly into the next day and I feel like shit but um, I don't know I don't mind doing that once a year once a year to remind myself why I only do it once a year pointless activity but it does feel nice when you recover from it reminds you of what it is what it's like to uh, not have a consistent hangover god bless Um, the good news is though in the middle of this three day lash I managed to purchase for myself a fully functional otter fountain it's a small water feature which goes in the, in the catalogue it was called Playful Otters and it's a little water feature that has a small family of otters on it and it operates as a fountain which I wanted number one because it's got a load of fucking otters on it and it's like a little shrine to your to your horn number two it has the continual trickling sound of running water which I find very beneficial to my tinnitus. But, uh, yeah, the pump on it is a bit too loud. It has a, a vibrating water pump, which sounds like, um, I don't know, a very aggressive fridge. You know, an angry fridge or a fridge that's experiencing uh, some type of existential malaise. So I think I'm going to go online and buy a, a much lower wattage water pump and I'll put that into the statue and then I can reduce the see it's an outdoor water fountain it's meant for out in someone's garden but I'm like fuck that man I'm turning it into the fireplace you know what's better than a fire an acrylic otter family that where water comes out of their mouths that's what I want fuck keeping my hands warm but yeah I'm gonna put a a silent pump for indoor functionality into the otter fountain and I will keep you cunts updated on that yurt so what I want to talk about this week if it's your first podcast by the way please go back to the start because I'm not wiping any arses I'm going straight in I think this, this week's podcast I'm going to start with a boiling hot take a boiling hot musical take. I wish to posit the idea that disco music is the real punk rock. Okay? Now, when we say punk rock in a musical context, it generally refers to, like, you know, the music, punk rock, but it, it, it means more than that. It, it's. 
It's an attitude, you know. People have described hip-hop as punk rock. People will describe, I don't know, any band nowadays that seems kind of counter-cultural. You know, when, when, when we first came out doing tunes with bags in our heads, singing songs about Devil Era taking yokes, we would have been referred to as punk rock. And it refers to rebellious music and a DIY attitude. Um, a fuck you to whatever music is currently dominating the charts or popular consciousness. But I am going to, I think, take you through the history of disco music. And this can be seen always as well like a continuation. I did a podcast I don't know which one, maybe 16 podcasts back, more even actually, it was one of the first podcasts, but I did a podcast on Northern Soul music. And historically, this one kind of, it almost kind of takes off where that one left off, kind of. Um, Not in the sense that Northern Soul, when it made its way over to England, but Northern Soul as in Philadelphia, uh, Philadelphia Soul music. And Detroit soul music, you know. Disco music is the real punk rock, in my opinion. That's my hot take. And this is why. The political roots of disco music. Right, firstly, yeah, firstly, what is disco music? Because it's one of this, it's it's a music that's so ubiquitous that it can kind of be referred to any type of tune now, can't it? But original disco music, what really characterised it was, it was it was centred around pure dancing. The beat was four to the floor, which is boom, 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 boom. There's not really any swing in it. It's not like funk. It's straightforward. Boom, 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 four to the floor. Um, disco music was very happy. It would have strings, you know, it would have an orchestral element and generally a cheerful celebratory music which, to be honest, we would not associate with being punk rock at all because disco is quite aesthetically pleasing. There's nothing jarring about disco music. It's not distorted. It's straightforward and aesthetically beautiful. But this cannot be said for the cultural roots from which disco emerged if punk rock was the kind of rebellious aggressive voice of we'll say the marginalised working class white communities of New York the likes of the Ramones or in London mid 70s with the Sex Pistols disco comes from the incredibly highly marginalised LGBT community of New York in the late 60s and to offer some kind of context for this I want to talk about a place called the Stonewall Inn and the Stonewall Riots this month by the way is Pride Month so this podcast also kind of intersects with the history of gay pride of which disco was kind of the soundtrack being gay or transgender, or queer, in 1969, in America, 
Firstly, it was straight up illegal, right? Uh, not only that, gay people were targeted by the government, by the American government, in the context of anti-communism, right? There was a thing in the 1950s in America called McCarthyism, which was a very severe anti-communist uh, paranoia. And gay people were targeted by the likes of the CIA and the FBI because they were seen as very easy to blackmail and potential spies for Russia. Do you get me? Because being gay was illegal. Also in 1969, being gay or transgender was considered a mental illness in the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, which is a manual still used today to, within psychiatry, to classify mental disorders, you know. But up until 1973, being gay was considered a mental disorder. So these are the three things facing gay people in, in 1969. It's illegal and you're mental, all right? In the area of Greenwich Village, New York, in the 50s, 60s, it became kind of a, an unofficial congregate, congr I can't say the word, congregative, I'm not saying the word, I can't say it, congregation, an area of congregation for gay people and for transgender people. Greenwich Village. New York, 50s and 60s. You had artistic movements coming out of Greenwich Village in the 50s. The Beat Poet movement, where writers like William Burroughs or fucking Allen Ginsberg were pretty much openly gay. They were writing about being gay, you know? So this all kind of, uh, it fostered a climate of Greenwich Village being kind of a haven for queer culture highly highly underground queer culture um, and the Stonewall Inn was kind of an illegal disco bar and it was seen as like the you know place to go if first of all as well in New York it was illegal for two men to dance together you know but in the Stonewall Inn you could do this now the Stonewall Inn was by all accounts an utter fucking shithole because I don't think they even had they didn't even have running water in there they had buckets it, it was it was not a legal premises as such it was owned by the mafia um, not out of the goodness of the mafia's hearts but because gay bars were illegal the mafia are the only ones who will actually run it because it's vice it's illegal vice and they were overcharging for drinks for the patrons because the patrons were, you know, they could be exploited. What are they going to do? It's an illegal bar. Um, they were watering the drinks down. But also, gay bars were being raided by police regularly. Um, it started from aggressively from 1964 onwards because there was an, a mayor in New York who was very conscious that America, that New York didn't look like it had a lot of gay people. This had all. This was already happening in San Francisco. He didn't want another San Francisco. So, police were actively seeking out gay people, transgender people. It was illegal to 
dress in what was considered, you know, not your gender. So they were raiding these bars, but the mafia would pay off the police to prevent raids. Or if there was going to be a raid, the mafia would at least know in advance. And this provided a certain level of protection for the gay community. So the Stonewall Inn was the place to be. Now, as well as that, though, with the Stonewall Inn in particular, it was seen as a place for the most most marginalised in the gay community. Blacks, Latinos, transgender people, um, sex workers, drag queens, butch lesbians. The Stonewall attracted these people. Also, within the broader spectrum of late 60s US culture, it was quite revolutionary, you know? You had the civil rights movement for black people. You had fucking the Black Panthers. Malcolm X. Martin Luther King. The anti-Vietnam movement, you know? Protest and... Standing up for yourself, standing up against oppression, that was in the water in 1969. So at about half one in the morning, 29th of, uh, or 28th of June 1969, there was a police raid in the Stonewall Inn. And as I mentioned, there was usually a tip-off if a raid was to happen. You know, not only was there tip-offs like... The lighting in the Stonewall Inn, it was, it was black lighting, so you couldn't really... It was very, very dark inside there. But if the police were about to come, they turned on a special white light so people knew the crack. So if you were dancing with another man or shifting a fella, stop immediately. And most importantly, if you were wearing anything even resembling drag, get the fuck out the back door. That simple, because people in drag were targeted the hardest by the police. But anyway, this night there was no tip-off and it was a full-on police raid. Caught everyone by surprise. Now some people were wondering, like, why, you know, wh- wh- how did the police manage to do this? Some people say now that the mafia had stopped giving the police kickbacks altogether because they were making, they weren't making money from the bar anymore. What they started making money from, the mafia, were if wealthy clientele gay clientele were visiting the Stonewall in particular we'll say lads from Wall Street who had a few quid who were who were gay and were looking for somewhere to go the mafia were identifying them and extorting them for huge amounts of money or else they would tell their families or tell their co-workers that they were gay so some reckon that that's what happened the mafia moved their operational money to blackmailing these wealthy customers and they stopped giving the police tip-offs they just stopped caring about it so anyway, normally what would happen at a raid was everyone was to line up, provide their identification, and then if there was female officers, they would take anybody who's wearing female clothes, we'll say, they were to go to the bathroom and female officers would check to see their sex, you know? And if you were, in fact, a man dressed as a woman, that's it, you're getting arrested. This night, the patrons were just like, fuck this. And the ones dressed as women were like, I'm not going to the jacks, no. And then lads in the line were like, you're not getting my ID. People, the people in the Stonewall that night said, no, you're not fucking arresting us 
for having crack. No, we've had enough. So the police kind of started freaking out because I think there was only about four of them. And the crowd kind of, you know, they started to kind of get a bit confident, you know. Um, so they all went out onto the street and they kind of, they toned up the kind of, the queerness of it, you know. They, they, like people said, you know, they got a bit more limp-wristed. They started, twic- you know, flicking their hair, being openly gay as an act of protest. Huge crowds started arriving outside, cheering on the people that were being arrested. So there was a, an element of, like the police were there, but it started off with an element of kind of, I won't say fun, but it wasn't hostile until one of the police got heavy-handed with uh, an African-American butch lesbian called Stormy Delavery. And Stormy Delavery, she's considered the Rosa Parks of the gay community. When the police hit her with a baton for complaining that her handcuffs were too tight, she turned to the crowd and said, why don't you do something? And at that moment... And anger came about the crowd. And they went apeshit. And in Stormy Delavery's own words, she said it was a rebellion, it was an uprising, it was a civil rights disobedience, it wasn't no damn riot. Because that's the thing, it's some people call it the Stonewall riots, others call it the Stonewall rebellion. So what ensued was a huge crowd of gay people, queer people, transgender people going fucking ape shit, throwing coins at the police, throwing anything, slashing tires of police cars, the whole shebang, and it caused the police to have to retreat inside the Stonewall. And the tactical police force, which would be like or tactical patrol force to be like the SWAT, they had to be called to save the police that were locked inside the Stonewall in. And this was hugely, hugely humiliating for the New York City police because they'd just lost you know they'd just essentially been beaten and not only had they been beaten they'd been beaten by the most marginalised underdog community in fucking New York City which was a crowd made main, mostly made up of queer people who were black or Latino so this was very demoralising for the police but that demoralisation led to a feeling of victory, a feeling of strength on the part of the gay community. So over the next few nights, there was even more uprising and even more kind of community getting together and saying, fuck this. And graffiti, putting graffiti on the walls all around Greenwich Village. Things like drag power, gay power, legalised gay bars, or gay bars, you know, all this carry on. Marsha P. Johnson, a drag queen, African-American drag queen, she fucked a bag of bricks through the window of a police car. She went on to become a founding member of a group called the Gay Liberation Front. And what what you have there with the, the Stonewall Rebellion is, that's the roots of gay pride. That's why June is Gay Pride Month. It's when the kind of disparate groups of Lesbians, gay, transgender, drag queens, drag kings, queer people. They all united under one kind of collective banner and collective identity and said, 
we exist, we deserve rights, you can't silence us, we're not going away, we've always been here. Um, my life should not be illegal, My, I have a right to exist and to have equal rights to you. And that's the start of it. And, and on a side note as well, like lads today I hear, you know, getting pissed off over gay pride. It's like, that's the roots of it, man. You know, would you get pissed off if, you know, it's a founding rebellious moment that deserves to be celebrated forever. You know, because there's work still to be done, but it's, what if someone said to you, don't celebrate 1916? That would sound pretty ridiculous, wouldn't it? But that's what the Stonewall Rebellion is. And that's what gay pride is. That's its roots. Very important. So Stonewall 1969. That is the cultural and political context. Of disco music. Because the tunes. That they would have been listening to. In the Stonewall Inn. Was proto-disco music. Okay. It was... Something happened in the late 60s with soul and funk, all right? We spoke about Philadelphia soul and Motown, this very upbeat music that you danced to. Well, at the late 60s, it started to intertwine with psychedelic culture and also Latin music, Cuban rhythms. And I suppose the like Woodstock was a big, Woodstock was a big influence um, and the sound of soul and funk kind of just getting a little bit weird, do you know? Fucking Sly and the Family Stone, huge influence. Uh, the work of Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix, you know, bringing... Hendrix was rock, but he brought a psychedelic sound towards what he was doing. Carlos Santana, Santana bringing Latin rhythms to funk music... All of these things together started to develop into what we would call proto-disco music. And it was this music that the blacks and Latinos, the gay blacks and Latinos in the Stonewall were like, this is what I fucking want to dance. I want to dance with another man to this music. And drug culture was a big thing, you know. They were taking quaaludes, they were taking speed, they were up dancing all night to this new type of proto-disco music that was characterised mainly by a four-to-the-four, four-to-the-floor groove. Mainly the four-to-the-floor, I reckon, the influence coming from Latin percussion. But this is what they were listening to. And that's pretty fucking punk rock, if you ask me. Do you know? Whatever about Johnny Rotten coming out of London and, you know, the massive marginalisation that he would have experienced in London as a fucking... An Irishman living in London in the 70s in fucking council flats in utter shit and his anger developed into punk rock. But I'm sorry, but fucking... I don't think Johnny Rotten was a, as oppressed as a black drag queen in New York in 1969. And the anger of Stonewall, that's the punk rock soul of disco music. Even though disco sounds incredibly happy... And as far from an aggressive rebellion as you could imagine aesthetically, that's its heart and soul. And that's why disco is fucking punk rock. 
Now, before I go more in depth, let's have a crack at the etymology of the word disco. Notorious dead sex offender Jimmy Savile has claimed to have coined the term disco himself. I call bullshit on it because he's a fucking spoofer. But what Jimmy Savile claimed was that in the he started using the term disco in the early mid actually no mid fifties I think mid nineteen fifties gigs in the nineteen fifties okay in Britain it was the show band era so if you went to your local fucking ballroom to dance or to meet a partner chances are it was a band a show band who were a band that just did covers of R&B or Skiffle and Jimmy Savile was like I can do a gig that doesn't need a band I'm going to play records now like he was one of the first DJs that's a fact but he claims that he would start doing these gigs and he would call them disc only gigs okay so if you're coming to this gig, know that you're not going to see a band with guitars. It's going to be discs only. And then he claims that he abbreviated disc only to disc O. Um, he made this claim in the 70s, though, when disco was already an established kind of name. So I'm calling spoof on that. Most likely the term disco comes from the French uh, phrase discotheque, which referred to like just a library of discs and what makes disco music so well one of the things that makes it really unique is it's the first musical genre really whereby it was le- it wasn't that much about gigs it was about the music being played on vinyl in clubs and this would have been happening in 69 in the stonewall or in a club just around the corner from the from the Stonewall, called the Haven, which was another gay club, and the Haven Club really is the start of disco. Because there was a DJ there called David Mancuso, who was Italian, I believe, a gay Italian man. But that's an important thing to note about disco. Like the word disc is important to it. This was music that was listen to more on vinyl in clubs than we'll say going to see a live disco band in the early days and of course this ushered in crucial to the disco era the DJ it was the first time that it wasn't just like 50s was jukeboxes 60s was jukeboxes but at near the end of it it was like no we now need one person with a collection of vinyl who was going to, like, like, uh, like, I used to always shit on DJs, you know, I used to think, ah, jeez, there's no talent in fucking playing music, but, no, me, myself, having done gigs, I started to realise that, the skill that a DJ has, is, it's empathy, a DJ must understand the mood of an entire room, they must have phenomenal empathy, and they must, they engage in, in, in a consistent conversation with the audience, you know just go to a wedding where they don't hire it like I've, I've been to one or two weddings where people were like fuck DJs we'll just have an iPod place falls on its arse you need someone with the talent and empathy to read the energy in the room at that moment and know exactly what to do 
to what to play at what tempo and how to mix it to get that crowd consistently dancing so that you never leave the floor. And that's what a DJ does. And disco is where we see the birth of the DJ. So disco music itself, it's stylistic origins, it's mechanics. Three real separate influences that make disco music. What went from proto-disco to actual disco. Three influences were, as I mentioned, psychedelic sound, Sly and the Family Stone, that type of crack. Then the emotional use of orchestras and strings which comes from Philadelphia soul, right? Philly soul was very much about the orchestras. Also, there's a bit of Motown in there, you know? The slap-bang-wallop of Motown music. And then, finally, Latin and Cuban rhythms. Those three things is what created the disco sound. So, as I mentioned, up around the corner from the Stonewall, there was a club called The Haven, which was a gay dance club. And the first kind of proper DJ, or who's recognised as the proper DJ, is a lad called Francis Grasso. And he DJed at Haven. And what Grasso is kind of credited with doing is creating the notion of the set. the Get a, collect, a collection of records and that... They're not just like a jukebox where you're going there and listening to a lot of songs one after another. Grasso was curating songs side by side to create a real sense of narrative throughout the night to empathically influence the mood of the dance floor. Okay? And from like the behaviour of the likes of Grasso, this would then influence what the, say, the early disco, disco musicians were making because what they found too was that they were selling their records to clubs so the musicians started to change up their style to reflect this new audience that wanted to dance to these tunes so that as well it caused more and more artists to be making songs that had this four to the floor beat because if all your songs have the same boom, 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 beat chances are they're all going to get thrown into the set together so that they mix it's very weird to go from four to the floor to a more complex rhythm or something with a swing do you get me and that's where we said the style of what then became known as disco comes from to give you kind of an idea of the type of tunes that Francis Grasso would have been playing um, I'll play for you a tiny bit of Soul Sacrifice by Carlos Santana and what you have here is you can you can hear with Santana Santana who was kind of a rock funk musician bringing in the kind of the, the Latin rhythms into the music.
So that's Soul Sacrifice by Carlos Santana in 1969. And this would have been one of the tunes that they'd have been playing in Haven and also would have been playing in the Stone Wall. Um, and from that groove would have come, you know, a lot of what we would later call, we said, disco music. Another essential thing to disco music was the sound system. Okay, it wasn't just, like I said, jukebox speakers anymore. It was taking the size and the fidelity of the sound system very, very seriously. This music needed to be fucking loud. And records were not associated with loudness. Not in 69. It was... If you were lucky, you had a shitty fucking record player at home. But playing massive fucking tunes on a massive system. That has its roots in Jamaica. With Jamaican sound systems. A lad called Cox and Dodd. But it found its way to New York. And expressed itself in early disco. Another crucial, crucial thing. To disco music was the creation of. The 12 inch vinyl single. Now singles. If you've ever, if you've ever fucking seen vinyl. Singles are very small. Okay. And a full album is massive. That's 12 inches. That's the size of a plate. But something happened by complete accident, which was to change how we listen to and experience music. Now, I'm moving on a couple of years to the early 70s and to a nightclub called The Loft and a DJ called David Mancuso. Um, Now, I might be wrong with attributing this to Mancuso because I'm not sure and it's hard to find a lot of info about this stuff. But the... Like I said, albums were being made on 12-inch vinyl, large vinyl, okay? And then, I might have this fucking wrong or right, but here's the gist of it. Some DJ wanted to take fag breaks during his set, okay? And he was playing albums. So if you think of an album, there's maybe six or seven songs on one side. And he wanted to be able to play a song and leave the fucking, leave the DJ box and go and smoke a fag. So he went to some fella who presses records and said to him, is there anything you can do for me whereby you can make a song longer or something like that? So what the lad who was pressing the record said is, how about for the crack, we put one song on a large 12 inch, okay? And what this meant is that an extended mix was created. A 12 inch is a large uh, fucking, it's a dinner plate size. So you now have one song on one dinner plate sized thing, which meant there's more room for more information. So an extended mix, a song that's maybe, you know, singles were traditionally between two minutes and three and a half minutes long. Now with a 12 inch single, you can have songs that are eight minutes long, 12 minutes long. The extended mix. So one DJ, it might have been Mancuso, I'm not sure, came to the club with this extended 12-inch vinyl that played long enough for him to be able to go out and smoke a fag and come back to the DJ box. One of the unintended consequences of this was because you've now only got one song on this physically massive space of vinyl, It meant that the grooves in the record were larger. And because they were larger, they had much, much higher fidelity. 
the music all of a sudden became much clearer and way louder to accommodate these huge sound systems and this was an accident so now you had this this music that was fucking pumping out of the sound system and the best quality audio fidelity that has ever been reached is the 12 inch single I, there's your Spotify can't fucking can't recreate that sound nothing can recreate that sound the 12 inch vinyl single is the best audio fidelity available if you have the right needle and the right turntable the closest thing if you want to get something close to it and hear how good 12 inch vinyl is go on to YouTube and look for 12 inch singles in, in HD right at the highest setting on YouTube and you can hear extended mixes from the 70s and 80s of songs the fidelity is unbelievable you can hear every single instrument while still being really loud there's no compression there's nothing squashing it as such you know I've digressed into some severely nerdy audio talk there now this is the type of shit that uh, gets me very excited though so from the 12 inch fucking singles you had this new DJ market and disco bands started going we have to make the 12 inch mix now we have to make a mix that is has has a fucking two minute breakdown of just the beat and sure of course the audience went fucking mad for this because they were coked out of their heads do you know at this point now in the mid 70s it kind of started to leave actually no I'm nearly writing out fucking Larry Levan another hugely important DJ of the mid 70s massively important would be the likes of uh, Larry Levan Okay, so David Mancoso was the DJ who ran The Loft in New York, early 70s. And one crucially important thing about The Loft, in that in order for The Loft to function as this gay nightclub, no drink was served, there was no liquor. So then Larry Levan opened up a place called The Paradise Garage. The same business model, no liquor. If you've got a bunch of cunts dancing all night with no liquor, what are they going to do? Off their tits on stimulants. Speed, coke, the origins of ecstasy. You know, ecstasy, uh, MDMA ecstasy was being used as a, a kind of a secret drug within psychotherapeutic circles. It started to see its emergence in the mid-70s in New York at the likes of the Paradise Garage. That's when disco starts to really kind of ramp up the speed you've got Larry Levan seriously mixing tunes to to the point that it's now a creative act he's now a real proper DJ mixing tunes and people would go to see Larry Levan's sets Frankie Knuckles is another character of equal importance but from this underground incredibly exciting punk rock community of resistance you know the gay community the black community the queer community transgender community latino community all getting together the italian community getting together and celebrating and expressing culture and sexuality through this new type of dance music in these clubs that don't serve drink um in a relatively a more relaxed climate we'll say legally than stonewall you have this new kind of thing emerging but then naturally what happens is it starts to you get tourists 
you know, it, it becomes a very, very cool thing. The Paradise Garage became unbelievably cool. So you get tourists, you get straight people turning up. You get uh, rich people, celebrities turning up. And that's where Studio 54 comes out of. Disco music had started to get on the radio and become quite popular by the 76, 1976 onwards. And then you have Studio 54, which was a very debauched nightclub, but it's the world's, it's seen as the world's first kind of huge fucking nightclub, nightclub. And, you know, with queues outside and celebrity DJs inside there and all of this shit. Uh, open sex, open drug use, but not necessarily a queer space anymore. There certainly would have been, you know, gay people and people of colour there. But it started to get a little bit more mainstream and a little bit more white with Studio 54. Also, disco music starts to get more mainstream mainly with the peak disco which is Saturday Night Fever the film Saturday Night Fever pushed disco into the mainstream and the soundtrack by the Bee Gees who Bee Gees were a bunch of lads from fucking born in Australia deported to Liverpool or something mad like that and then all of a sudden became disco artists now I'm not shitting on it the fucking the album Saturday Night Fever Incredible, incredible songwriting. Amazing songs. But it's mainstream. It's no longer the marginalised voice of... you know the, It's no longer the punk rock voice. It's Green Day now. It's, green, it's, it's what Green Day is to the Sex Pistols. That's what the BJs were. So by the late 70s, disco had become... To be honest, it was always seen as a novelty music. Disco was not taken seriously in the 70s at all. It was seen as fun, novelty music and was not viewed as revolutionary or important at all. And peak disco started to happen around 77, 78 when every fucking artist in the world had to have a disco song. And it got saturated and people got pissed off with disco and peak disco was reached. And disco officially ended in 1979 in quite an ugly fashion and this happened in Chicago as I believe it was a baseball night so like I said by 79 disco had become too mainstream peak mainstream it was the most uncool fucking novelty music you could imagine and there was this thing called the disco demolition night in Chicago in Comiskey Park during what I think is a baseball fucking match or however you play baseball, I don't know. So this shock jock on radio had organised that first of all there was a free beer promotion. So you had a a baseball match, this mostly white male crowd and the shock jock said to the crowd bring your disco records with you tonight and we're going to burn disco records in the middle of the field okay so that was the plan but there was also a free beer promotion so the crowd very angry white men uh, brought their records with them and they were burnt there was about I think it was about 20,000 this giant burning flaming pit of records in the middle of the field 
But here's the problem. The subtext of the disco demolition night, whether it was intentional or not, like the... What's the opposite of the subtext? The context? Yeah, the context of the night was disco isn't cool, um, it's not real rock music, it's not real music, there's no creativity, it's silly music for ages, that was the context. But the underlying subtext was racism and homophobia. And this is evident in when the people in the audience brought their disco records to be burnt, there was a load of records in there that weren't even disco. Marvin Gaye was in there, you know? People brought with them black records or records from artists that were gay and burnt those. So Disco Demolition Night wasn't about disco. It was a violent expression of homophobia and racism. Because the beer was involved, the discs went on fire. Uh, People started getting records, fucking them all over the stands. And they stormed the field. And there was this big, flaming, aggressive riot occurred and that's generally seen as the absolute end of disco music after the disco demolition night disco artists the it showed america that disco was not going to be tolerated anymore so the labels moved away from disco music labels start stopped signing disco artists labels stopped funding disco artists so a lot of disco artists were dropped from their labels but from this comes something quite fucking beautiful. The second phase of disco, which is known as post-disco music. And this happens about 1980 onwards. Post-disco music, to be honest, that's my favourite genre of disco music. Post-disco music is one of my favourite genres of any music. I fucking love it. If you want to hear post-disco music, uh, I have a playlist on Spotify. Look up Rubber Bandits on Spotify and look for my post-disco Roots of House Music playlist. So what post-disco was, record labels aren't funding disco anymore. Now, as I described, disco had become quite decadent. It required massive orchestras, you know, to do the string sections, big bands. Making disco was quite expensive, but the record label said, fuck that, we're not funding it anymore. So whatever disco artists remained, they had to kind of go underground with these tiny budgets And they had to almost shamefully turn to synthesizers. It's like, if if I can't afford an orchestra, I have to use this machine that pretends it's an orchestra. If I can't afford a drummer, I have to use this machine that does the job of a drummer. And that's post-disco music. It is the attempt at making disco using only electronic instruments. So this is about 1980. From this... That's the roots of house music, techno music, all of that. Disco had gone from mainstream and white by the late 70s to going back underground to the gay, black and Latino communities that it started with. And you see house music coming out of New York and coming out of Chicago by the mid 80s. And then over in the UK as well the creation of the the Hacienda nightclub which was I think it was the lads in a new order 
New Order were a British band that were very, you know, they were keeping an eye on what was happening in New York with post-disco. And New Order had visited, I think it was Studio 54 or Paradise Garage, and said, we, we need one of these in Manchester. So they started the Hacienda. So that's how, we'll say, house music started in the UK as well, by the mid to late 80s. But from that, you know, the Stonewall Riots in 69, you can trace an exact musical evolution to today's fucking banging EDM, which has become male and white again, you know, the likes of Avicii, God rest his soul. It's kind of lost its its gay black Latino roots again. But, yeah, go to that playlist that I have on Spotify. Post-disco roots of house music. I guarantee you, you will hear in that some of the best songs you've ever heard in your life that you did not know existed. Because post-disco was very underground, mostly, throughout the 80s. There was a couple of breakthroughs. Michael Jackson's Thriller, heavily borrowed from the sounds of post-disco. Luther Vandross had a few crackers, you know. But mostly it was quite underground and it was known as the Black Charts. That's what it was referred to in the 80s. Um, Of crucial importance also, which I forgot to mention, with the late 70s disco sound, with with, with post-disco adopting electronic instrumentation, it wasn't just because of economic necessity there's also a European influence there at 1977 Donna Summer I Feel Love was produced by uh, Giorgio Moroder an Italian who was making a type of music called Italo Disco which was an electronic type of disco influence also there was a genre called Space Disco which was complete and utter novelty music it was seen as at the time where Daft Punk traced their roots to that Bands like Ganymede from Austria would dress up as aliens or spacemen and make this weird space disco. Disco that dealt with intergalactic themes and had a lot of musical instrumentation to it. Japanese influence. Um, There was a show on television in America called Soul Train, which would platform a lot of uh, black artists. But occasionally they would have international artists that were making danceable fucking music one band that got booked on Soul Train some people say by accident were Yellow Magic Orchestra a Japanese band electronic music band from the mid 70s who Ryuchi Sakamoto would have been uh, Ryuchi Sakamoto would have been the leader of that band he's a legend he's the Japanese Ennio Morricone but Listen to fucking Yellow Magic Orchestra for the love of Christ if you want to hear some good, mad electronic music, Japanese electronic electronic music from the 70s. Um, what else? Kraftwerk, German influence as well. Kraftwerk, as far I believe, did appear on Soul Train. So there is this Italo disco, space disco, and Japanese city pop, uh, and also German krautrock influence in post-disco also that is worth noting from the ashes of disco as well worth noting uh, like we'll say 1979 disco demolition the end of disco it kind of fork tongued it went the direction of very underground post-disco with the 
kind of gay community. But then the other place that I went is hip-hop music. Hip-hop in a sense, which, and hip-hop would have, would have you're talking 78, 70, 79 in the Bronx, New York. Hip-hop also came out of disco, but as an active rebellion against it. Hip-hop kind of felt that disco is a is a it's a black music but it doesn't reflect the struggle and like disco was listened to in a very subversive fashion by a subversive community but lyrically and musically disco itself was not subversive it was not aggressively subversive it didn't deal with social ills or social injustice in its lyrical themes disco was all about celebrating i mean think of it fucking celebrate good times come on do you know what I mean or any of the, the music of Chic you know Niall Rodgers and Chic created fucking incredible disco music but their lyrics were very upbeat hip hop artists emerging in 1979 1980 in the Bronx felt that this music didn't reflect the impoverished struggled reality of black people in the Bronx so hip hop came out of that to go well we're going to talk about the poverty we live in. We're going to talk about police brutality. We're going to talk about the struggles that we face. So hip-hop comes out of that too as a, as a reaction to disco. And then you've got post-disco going underground. Fuck me, lads. That was a very indulgent musical rant. And I hope you enjoyed it. Christ. Um, having ranted for fucking 50 minutes, to be honest, I could have done three hours on that, you know. I'm feverishly interested in that particular genre and that type of that thread you know I love finding threads in in music and culture and seeing where they lead but uh, thank you for listening to that because we're 50 minutes into that rant so I think it's time for our ocarina pause is it so every week what we do is Acast insert adverts into this podcast which you may or may not hear I'm going to play my Spanish clay whistle for a little bit and you'll either hear my Spanish clay whistle the ocarina or an advert for some bullshit Hold up What was that? Boring No flavor That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years 
when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions. I often seek the help of a professional therapist to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindbuy. That was the ocarina pause. Also, this podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page. The podcast is free. Um, you're welcome to listen to it for free. But a lot of listeners, you know, are like, fuck it, I, I liked that. I, I love, I, I enjoy the f- five hours of content that Blind Boy gives me a month. I think I'll buy him a pint. So please feel free to contribute to me the price of a pint on patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast if you'd like to support me and support the work that I'm doing. And if you can't afford it and you want to continue listening for free, absolutely fine. You can do that too. Don't bother. Um, Subscribe to the podcast. Leave a positive review. And most importantly, and especially if you are not Irish like if you're if you're not living in Ireland if you're somebody in fucking Canada or Australia or London or Spain you know I've got listeners to this podcast all around the world if you're someone who's listening to this podcast in isolation please suggest it to your friends because I want the podcast to grow but I want it to grow internationally I don't want like this podcast is the number one podcast in Ireland which is good but I'm at the same time cautious of reaching peak podcast in Ireland. I don't want it to get it too popular in Ireland because then that has the disco demolition effect, do you know? So I want to grow this in the same kind of word amount underground way, but in America, in fucking London, in Spain, whatever. So please recommend it to a friend if you're one of those cunts. Yart. I'll take a look at a few of your questions, you absolute bastards. Oh yeah, actually, I forgot to fucking mention, quite bizarrely during the week, Hollywood actress Rosario Dawson started following me on Instagram and then started posting photographs of herself wearing a, a plastic bag. Now I haven't a fucking clue how Rosario Dawson found the rubber bandits or myself. I reckon she listens to the podcast, so... Rosario Dawson, tell some Hollywood friends or something about me, will you? Please. And if you're ever in Limerick, we'll go to the Chicken Hut and I'll take you to see an otter. Okay? Um, So I'll take a few of your questions, lads. Jimmy asks, (coughs) Blind by... Actually, do you know what? I think I'll get the trout of no crack. 
I'll see if the trout of no crack is around and I'll get him to read out the questions. Are you around? I am, yeah. Will you read out some of these questions? Are they going, sir? Blind boy, I'm dealing with a tough situation at the minute where I have been financially exploited to the tune of what to me is a significant sum of money. Actually, stop reading that one because that's too serious. So I'm going to read that one myself. Alright? Okay. Blind boy, I'm dealing with a tough situation at the minute where I have been financially exploited to the tune of what to me is a significant sum of money. After looking into it, it seems there's little I can do. It has caused a fair bit of stress and all I can think of is how much misery I wish upon those who did it to me. It's all very fresh and still raw, but I need to try and put this behind me and move on. I'm struggling though, any advice? Fucking hell, Jimmy, that's a tough one. Well, obviously, very sorry to hear that. That's a shit situation. Um, Aside from the obvious questions of is there anything you can do to either get the money back or bring those people to justice, those are the first avenues you look down, right? The actual rational, logical approach to retrieving uh, what was taken from you financially, okay? Number one. Number two. If the situation is is literally outside of your control, okay? If this money is gone from you and retrieving it is is beyond your control, if it's if it's something you cannot control, well, echoing last week's podcast, the one thing you can control is your attitude towards it. I appreciate that you mentioned there that you want to bring misery upon the people who did it to you, but like that's not going to bring your money back and that will make you more unhappy I promise you fixating on revenge and retribution like it's that's that's only gonna it'll make you more angry it'll make you more upset it will make you attach yourself more to the finances that you lost you know so that's not the most there's better ways to look at it I would say right like you have control over how you look at this situation that's what's now in your control even though you've lost this money here's a good way to look at it consider this as a very very expensive lesson that you learned okay you pretend you just went to cunt college you just went to college and learned some very expensive lessons on around exploitative pricks. And I guarantee you this is the last time that you will be financially expi- exploited by pricks. Because you've just paid for this very, very expensive lesson now. You've gone to college. You've gone to prick college. Okay? And those are your fees for prick college. But now you've got a degree in dickheads. Do you get me? So walk away from that fee and go, I'm never getting fucked over again because I can spot the signs. I can spot the signals. And that's not going to bring your money back. But it's it's a healthier approach to something that is currently outside of your control. Do you know? Pain and suffering and disappointment and getting fucked over are inevitable um, consequences of, of 
being alive. These are part of the tapestry of human existence. I've been fucked over financially before, you know. I refuse to give my power over further to somebody who does that to me by being angry with them or wishing punishment and retribution. Now, there's nothing wrong with wishing justice, right? That's different. Punishment, that's an internal anger That's that benefits nobody. Justice is different. That's if someone committed a crime, then justice. Different story. But retribution, anger, you'll find that it just attaches you more to the loss and it attaches you more. It'll cause an internal cycle of negativity which will ultimately negatively impact your mental health. And why would you want to, you know, if you've already given them a few hundred quid or a couple of grand or whatever it is, why do you want to continue to give them your very being, you know? So, pricks are gonna prick. You know, that's it, pricks are gonna prick. And you're gonna, now can spot a prick. What can I say? Um, Quite facetious, could be perceived as facetious too, but you could have been hit by a car, man, you know? People, people fucking get on their bicycle in the morning and lose their legs. Do you know, do you have your health? That's what I'd be asking. Do you have your health? And again, not being facetious because I'm not aware how big of a financial impact this has had on your quality of life. But do you have your health? Are you able to live as an able-bodied person and have all the privileges of health and legs and hands and mental health and all of that? If you've got that, you know, that's that's wonderful, isn't it? What's a couple of quid when you have that? You learned a very expensive and important lesson. You went to prick college. And that's how I would look at it if I was in your situation and it was outside of my control. But I certainly wouldn't be ruminating on revenge because that just hurts you. Emily asks, Hey Blind Boy, any tips for starting out in live performance or comedy, especially for an act that doesn't fit in traditional <coughs> stand-up or theatre? Um... <coughs> The one thing I'd say to anybody starting off in something creative is that the risk of failure is fucking huge. So embrace the potential for that failure because that will naturally make you more creative. And never ever put your eggs in one fucking basket. Don't do that because once you do that it becomes more difficult to take risks and only in an environment where you can take creative risk can you be truly creative. I mentioned this before with the bag that's on my head. This bag on my head means that at all times I can fail. Do you know, I can make a bollocks of something, ruin my my career as a podcaster or as a musician or whatever, or isolate my audience. And worse comes to worst, I can just go back to college or get a job doing something different, you know, because I've got this bag protecting me. So that's my not having eggs in one basket type of thing but that's what I'd say to you if you want to become a performer or whatever do it on a very much a part time basis in your free time and understand that the likelihood is that and this sounds fucking harsh but the likelihood statistically is that you will fail that doesn't mean that you're going to but embrace that embrace the inevitability of potential failure and from that you there's a better chance of succeeding you know 
and just have crack with it have fun if you're doing this stand up first off I'd recommend the internet you know whatever about going to stand up gigs that's great but try and put out video content or whatever but make sure that it's fun make sure that whatever act of creativity you embark upon that if you weren't you would you like it if you try and create for an audience then you're fucked because you're not in creative flow you're creating with your brain you need to create with your heart so have fun with it what would you do if you were four years of age and you were playing with Lego you know think back to that contemplative meditative type of creativity where you don't care what the end result is because you're simply doing there's no purpose to it you're exploring your own aesthetic sensibilities and pleasing yourself that's the advice that I'd give anybody who wants to have a crack at something creative when you take this shit too seriously and you say I am I'm going to be a successful comedian I'm going to be that's in, in the internal psychology of that is almost um self sabotage because your identity and your sense of self and your self esteem gets attached to something that you're doing and that means when you fail at it you're not just failing at that thing you're failing as a person so have crack with it have no expectations and create for you and fuck other people because if you try and create for them it's just going to be a failure anyway do you know create for you and you might be grand last question from Eamon hi blind boy I run and also use the Headspace app you recommended. You said that you practice mindfulness whilst running. Have you any tips on how to do that? I find my mind wandering an awful lot while running. Thank you. Um, well, your mind wandering while you're running isn't necessarily a bad thing if the running is making you feel great and energising you and giving you the necessary chemicals that your brain kind of needs to stimulate itself. So don't be concerned about it. There's running can make your mind very active like I don't meditate all the time when I'm running sometimes I go out running and I might listen to Bill Burr's podcast or I listen to a lot of tunes sometimes when I'm running I will do it in a meditative fashion what I would say is that meditating <coughs> while running is incredibly advanced meditation and I'm only able to do it after years of traditional sitting down meditation okay it took a long time for me to master meditation to be able to go I can do this relaxing technique while I'm fucking baiting it down the road it's I I, I, I focus on my body I focus on the steps Um, when you're running I, I, I regulate my breathing the breathing is naturally a hell of a lot faster obviously because I need more oxygen than it would be if I was sitting down but I'm mindful of my feet touching the ground I'm mindful of the rhythm of my feet as they run I'm mindful of I I visualise my breath Uh, sometimes I visualise it as kind of like a a light or an energy going in and out and I breathe through in through my nose and out through my mouth and 
I just keep all my attention and focus on that or my focus on my legs and really to enter a meditative state it's having giving your full attention to any aspect of your behavior that is repetitive and rhythmic no matter what the tempo do that long enough with enough skill and you'll enter a meditative state in your head you know but don't be worrying don't be worrying if, if your head is is flying around the place the fact that you're out there running is brilliant and getting a lot of endorphins do you know maybe running for you is where your head does wander it depends now on the wandering you don't want to be running and if your head is wandering to an anxious place or an angry place or if your head is wandering to a place where you're I don't know, reliving arguments with somebody where you wish you said this or wish you said that or worrying about next week or worrying about something you said last week. You know, that's it's a shame to allow that type of irrationality and negativity to infiltrate your running experience. But if your head's just wandering, regular thoughts, and you're enjoying the run, fuck it, keep doing that. Um, the meditation is an, is an advanced thing. Okay, goodbye, you lavish bastards. Have a great, uh, have a lovely week. Enjoy yourself. Um, I'm still trying to figure out when I should, I have a backlog of about 10 live podcasts and I'm still trying to figure out when I should kind of put them out. I'm thinking of the odd, I asked Twitter last week and I think the odd Saturday. I don't want to replace the Wednesday podcast with a live podcast because the energy is different. But, yeah, I might start doing that soon. The odd Saturday or the odd Friday. You know, just put out a live podcast. Because I've loads of them uh, backed up. And fair play to you. You're coming to the gigs. And it's great crack. I did a lovely gig there in Kilkenny with uh, the writer Louise O'Neill. Which was tremendous crack. And Louise is unbelievably sound and unbelievably interesting and... She just has that great energy about her. Do you know? I can see it looking into her eyes. She's got that... um, That magic. Magic behind the eyes. Where you can tell, like... This person's an artist. You just know. Do you know what I mean? Uh, that's that's what I got off her. So... That was class. And I can't wait to put that one out. Alright, go in peace. Go in peace. And have a, a lovely week. And throw a few stones. Rub a few dogs.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 